Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be taking a look at the opening statements and a little bit of the rebuttal in a debate between a Mormon and a Christian. We're only focusing here on the statements made by the Mormon, and specifically we're dealing with what the Mormon has to say about the nature of God the Father. And so this should be an exciting thing, an interesting thing. Uh, I'll just say very briefly that Kwaku, I think I'm pronouncing that right, I hope so if you see this Kwaku, seems like a really nice guy, seems like a really friendly guy, the guy that you could get along with and have a good conversation with. Nevertheless, we see that what he's saying about God is really, really dangerous, and so we need to clarify this misunderstanding about the nature of God that Mormonism holds. So we're going to take a look at the Mormon understanding of God and uh, when it's compared to the Christian understanding of God. He's going to unpack what he thinks about the Christian understanding of God, and we're going to see what we think about that and how we can respond. And then we're going to say some things about why the Mormon understanding of God, I think, is likely not even possible. So we're going to talk about that, and I don't want to waste too much more time. This is Kwaku. This is a debate on the nature of God that he had, and we're going to jump right in. So here is Kwaku setting things up for why he thinks the idea of an immaterial God, that is a God without a physical body, is uh, problematic. In 1893, B.H. Roberts bravely and profoundly challenged the doctrine described to God during the Great Apostasy. He stated, to assert the immateriality of God as substance, is not only to deny his personality, but his very existence. For an immaterial substance cannot exist. It can have no relation to time, space, no form, no extension, no parts. An immaterial substance is simply no substance at all. It is a contradiction of terms to say a substance is immaterial. It is the description of an infinite vacuum, and the difference between the atheist and the orthodox Christian is one of terms, not of fact. The former says there is no God, and the latter in his creed says God is nothing. All right, again, obviously you can see he seems like a really likable guy, a lot of charisma. Um, and so I, I want Kwaku to know if he sees this or any other Mormons who see this, that while I'm going to be straightforward and somewhat bold about the content here, about the uh, understanding of the nature of the Father, um, this is not some. This is not geared toward an attack on you, whoever you are, though it might feel that way. Um, ideas are not persons, and I think that while it can be problematic to attack persons, there's nothing improper about um, about attacking ideas. And there have been major travesties in the history of man when people were afraid to attack wrong ideas. And so um, I, I want to be straightforward about this. This is very interesting. I just recently did a video response to an atheist, and that atheist uh, was saying similar things about the term substance. Uh, he, he said that, that, that su an immaterial substance is a contradiction in terms, and that's basically what Kwaku has just said, if not exactly what Kwaku has just said. Now, Kwaku was quoting someone, I think, but nevertheless, he's quoting him positively as if this is what he agrees with. And the thing that I want to say about this is, this seems to be a misunderstanding of what is meant in philosophy when we talk about substance. And we're going to see probably a reason for that in just a little while when Kwaku talks a little bit about his source for his understanding of what a substance is. And that is a very problematic source for doing the detailed philosophical work that he's trying to do right here, talking about the ontology. So substance 
I think that the atheists and and people like Quaku, who perhaps are Mormon, that they have this understanding about um, substance that it, it's like some kind of a goo that you could maybe put into a petri dish or something. And you can do that with physical substances, but that's just what they think the word substance means. That we're talking about some kind of a fabric or a goo or something like that. But this is actually not a term that arises from science. This is a term that has a rich philosophical history etymologically. When you talk about Plato and the Platonic forms, or perhaps Aristotle's understandings, like in his book Metaphysics, what you get is an understanding that substance is the fundamental nature of something. So what this is vitally important for this entire uh, address and really this entire debate from Kwaku's side of things is that because he presumes that substance can only refer to physical things, then in order for something to have a substance, it must be a physical substance. Then if God is immaterial, well, then then such a God, the, the immaterial God, does not exist because you have to have a physical substance in order, something has to be physical in order to be a substance. This is a major, major problem, and it just stems from, number one, a misunderstanding of what we mean in philosophy when we're talking about substance, and number two, um, a problematic source that he's going to cite in a few moments to show us what he thinks about substance. So these are all important things that I, I want to mention at the beginning. Uh, basically, toward the end, he said an immaterial substance cannot exist and can have no relation to, to time and space. Well, first of all, if it can't exist, then of course it can't have a relation to time and space. So I think what he's saying is if it, uh, let, even though it can't exist, let's imagine that an immaterial substance did exist, it could have no relation to time and space. And for that, we merely got an assertion. And what we're going to see throughout this discussion, I think you'll find, is a kind of Pre, uh, presupposition of the, uh, uh, on Quaku's part, more than one, but specifically the one I want to address here is the presupposition that in order for something to exist, it must exist physically. And and he will grant that things like love or friendship or happiness or um, uh, perhaps the laws of logic, that those things do exist and they're not material. So uh, it's interesting because he kind of grants that immaterial things can exist, but there he, he, he ties them to... Um, uh, minds and ideas that if we didn't exist to conceptualize them, then they, I guess they wouldn't exist. This is, which is odd in its own right. We may come back to that, but of course that would lead you into a very bizarre place where you're saying something like if there were no minds to think about the laws of logic, then the laws of logic wouldn't exist or something like that. But I won't push him that far because he didn't get to say as much about that as I would have liked to have heard. But the idea is aside from those, um, those things that he puts under the banner of ideas, in order for something to exist, it has to be physical. This is very much like what atheist materialists hold. Um, but, uh, but, but this is just a presupposition. So, and, and, and of course it, it's ma it masquerades as not just a presupposition because he gives us a source that we're going to look at in a few minutes. And of course, quotes from Mormons and, and a couple of quotes from Christians. But the idea is that, um, that, that these, these, pro these problematic sources, particularly the one I'm going to focus on back up his claim that in order for something to have a substance, it has to be a physical substance. And in order for something to exist, it has to be physical. And of course that is just a presupposition. So all we get throughout this entire thing is just presupposition that the, that if something exists, it has to be physical. Therefore, if God exists, God has to be physical. And so that's a very important thing to, I think, to bring into this discussion. Let's hear what he has to say about the Christian conception of God. One of the creeds Roberts was referencing is the Westminster Confession of Faith. In order to be as accurate and respectful as possible, I'm going to read an excerpt of the description of God from this creed. 
There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free. You'll notice the words invisible, incomprehensible, and without body, parts, or passions. These words are sandwiched between pretty and worshipful words to essentially distract from a problematic theology. Most pure spirit, infinite, perfect, incomprehensible, invisible, most wise, most holy, and absolute. This is essentially what politicians do in writing bills, use emotional language that cries goodness, and then state the problematic reality and close with more pretty language. Okay, um, these words are not sandwiched between pretty and worshipful words in order to distract from a problematic theology. Instead, they are sandwiched between the positive claims of what God is. Notice what he's done here. First of all, he has, and we can all do this, we all tend to look at things as though they are from our perspective, like our worldview is the only thing that the the person drafting a particular uh, creed or whatever, or argument, that, that we're the target, that we specifically are the target. And so he, he he's like, look, they're trying to hide this. They're, they're trying to you know give you some stuff right here and then pretty it up with flowery language. And in doing so, what Kwaku ends up uh, ends up doing is he ends up focusing on the negatives that show what God is not. And indeed the statement does talk about what God is not, but it also talks about what God is. Kwaku ignores that it talks about what God is and the parts where it's talking about what God is. He just calls that pretty language used to distract from problematic theology. But this is something that atheists do too. When you give something like the Kalam cosmological argument, which doesn't give you anything as robust about God as uh, the Westminster Confession does here. But when you look at something like the Kalam, the conclusion of the Kalam cosmological argument, I'm sorry, the conclusion of the case that begins with the Kalam cosmological argument, after you get done with everything that begins to exist, uh, the, the, everything that begins to exist must have a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause. Then you do the conceptual analysis, and when you finish with that, what you get is some statements of what God is not. You also get statements of what God is. So basically what you get is God is spaceless, timeless, non-material. Those are the statements of what God is not. He's spaceless, timeless, non-material. Um, that is, he, he does not occupy space. Um, he does not exist in time, and he is not made of matter. So he's spaceless, timeless, non-material. But then you also say he's spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently wise, uh, are sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise, and a mind, right? That's what the cause must be. So you give three things that God's not and three things that God is. He's spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise, mind, right? But when atheists react to this, what they do is somewhat like what Kwaku has done here. And that is that they say something like, well, look, when you get done, all you're doing is telling me what God isn't. You're describing God as nothing. Well, of course, we're not describing God as nothing. We do tell you some things that God isn't, but then we tell you some things that God is sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind. That's what we tell you that God is. And we can maybe even get a couple more things out of that, um, depending on how you how you how you uh, do the conceptual analysis. But the point is, they ignore those things that would be problematic for what they're trying to say. And they focus on those things that they like, which is you've told some things that God isn't. And so you're just describing nothing. How could I possibly be describing nothing when I've given you positive statements about what God is and what God can do? Likewise here, what Kwaku has done with the Westminster Confession is he has focused only on those things that it says that God isn't. 
um, that he's not material and all those kind of things. But it does and incomprehensible uh, can't be fully understood. But what he hasn't focused on are the things that it says God is. It says that God is uh, holy, almighty, uh, wise, free. Understand, when you're talking about something that is holy, you're saying something positive about what it is. When you're saying almighty, you're saying something positive about what God is and what God can do. When you're talking about free, you're talking about an ability uh, that this uh, that this being has. So we're, th there are negative statements about what God is not, but that's only for the sake of clarity. He's not these things. He is these things. That's the important part of this. But what Kwaku has done is he, he slowly speaks and focuses on the things that it says God isn't. And then when it talks about what God is, he rattles those off and then says, those are only what politicians do. That's just flowery language to try and distract from the problematic theology. And this is just to completely miss the point. It, it, it's lazy in the sense, and I'm not just pointing at Kwaku, I'm pointing at anyone who does this. It's lazy in the sense that it doesn't engage with each term. It categorized a certain kind of term, the ones that aren't useful for Kwaku's case or would be damaging to Kwaku's case, categorizes those, poisons the well against them by saying this is the sort of thing that politicians do and then dismisses them out of the way and focuses on the stuff that Kwaku wants to focus on because they go along with the narrative that he and the individual that he began by quoting, um, the narrative that they're creating together. And so that is, that's really a problem. So again, these words are not sandwiched between pretty and worshipful words in order to distract from a plot problematic theology. They are sandwiched between the positive claims of what God is and the negative claims, the things that God is not. So all of those things I think are important. Let's move on to the next statement that I think is a problem that stems from that mistake. The reality is there's no way to worship or have a relationship with or understand something invisible and incomprehensible. So it is with immateriality. Okay, there's no way to worship something invisible and incomprehensible. No way to have a relationship with something invisible and incomprehensible. Now, um, a couple things about this. I think we're equivocating a little, or I think we're missing a point here by focusing on ontology. So, yes, it's true that the Christian conception of God is that he is invisible. That's an ontological claim, right? We don't think that any man can see God. So he's invisible in that way. But here's a question for Kwaku. Has Kwaku seen God, his God? Has he seen that God? Now, maybe he would say that he is, and that would make for a very interesting discussion in its own right. But um, there are many Mormons, I think, who would say they've never seen their God, the Mormon God. They've never seen this God visibly, which means that for them, that God is invisible. Even if ontologically the Mormon God is described as being visible and having a physical form, the fact is he is invisible from the perspective of his worshipers. So the question then becomes, how do, if, if there's a problem with having a relationship with uh, an invisible God, then, okay, on the Christian view, he's ontologically invisible, and on the Mormon view, he's ontologically visible. But from my perspective and your perspective, he's invisible. And if you're saying you can't, have, uh, you can't worship or have a relationship with such a being, then how do you have a, have a relationship with such a being? H how do you worship? such a being. This is a very, this is a very serious problem. As far as incomprehensible, uh, he can't be completely comprehended. We can know some things about God, but we can't know everything about God. Do you think that you know everything about your God? Um, if not, 
then how do you worship him? How do you have a relationship? This is not just a problem. Uh, if this is a problem at all, it's not just a problem for Christians. It's a problem for you. Now, for careful listeners, it may sound like I just committed the two quo qui fallacy, the you too fallacy, or as William Lane Craig's calls it, the yo mama fallacy, right? That I've, I've not really answered the charge. I've just said, you've got the same problem I've got. But of course, that dissolves when I point out that I don't think it's a problem at all to have a relationship with and to worship an invisible and um, not entirely comprehensible God. I don't think there's a problem with that at all. I have a relationship with God. Um, I believe that I see what he want, how he wants me to live to my life, and, and um, he instructs me in that way through Scripture. Also, I have the, um, the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is in my life. And, and this guides me along with Scripture. And uh, then I pray to God. I have a relationship with God, and I can certainly worship God. This just isn't a problem. I, I don't think it would be a problem for you, except that you hold that view, and I don't think that your God is the correct understanding of God. I think you have the wrong God. I think you need to become a Christian. But in principle, I don't think there's any problem with worshiping or having a relationship with an invisible, ontologically not visible, or um, not entirely comprehensible God. But the, but the deeper problem, for you, I think, is if you're going to lodge that complaint at the Christian, you have to lodge it at yourself and at other Mormons for whom their God may be ontologically visible, but he's not, he's invisible from their perspective. So I'll throw the words right back at you. How do you have a relationship with and how do you worship an invisible God? I don't think it's a problem, but if you think it's a problem, it's a problem for you. Um, I think there was something else that I wanted to say there, but uh, but let's just let's just keep uh, let's just keep trucking. All right, we'll go on now to the next thing that I want to point out. Using Webster's dictionary, I will replace the word substance with the various definitions listed to gain a better understanding of what substance means. All right, so he's using this is the source that he's going to use to do this deeply philosophical work and theological work on the, on the understanding of the term substance. He's going to go to Webster's dictionary. Now, you might wonder what's wrong with Webster's Dictionary. That's a standard work. Yes, and I have nothing but respect for the great people at Merriam-Webster. In fact, one of their workers uh, re uh, sometime a few years ago went on a podcast that I listened to and said that you can say that you've read a book if you listened to the audiobook version of that book. You can, According to Merriam-Webster, you can say that you read that book. So whenever I listen to a book on audiobook and my wife says, you didn't really read that book, I say, well, according to Merriam-Webster, I did. Why is that appropriate? Why is it appropriate to use Merriam-Webster in some cases and not others? Because Merriam-Webster is a very uh, important work and, um, and, and a sensible one to use for the modern usage of the English language. That's perfectly fine. But when you're doing work on um, ancient texts or when you're doing something within a specific discipline that uses terms in a nuanced way, Merriam-Webster is the wrong place to go for that. And so if it were the case that Quaker was one of my students, um, at Trinity College, the Bible and Theological Seminary, he would get points deducted for using this source in this way. And I think that's an important thing to point out. Merriam-Webster is going to describe things the way that they will be used in the English language in the modern world. So when you, in, and in a non-professional way. So if you're talking about, uh, if you're looking at Webster to look at the term substance, you're going to get things that are largely going to be physical, unless you're talking about the substance of someone's presentation, which of course is a completely different usage of substance. That's an important thing to keep in mind. And it's one of the things that masks the presupposition that Kwaku brings into this discussion that if something isn't physical, it's not real, or it's merely an idea. 
And this is important because this is why he's able to mask this presupposition. And what results is circular reasoning because he goes to a source that's largely going to presume physical stuff that we're used to every day in the modern world for English speaking uh, individuals and students and, and then try to, uh, anachronistically put that back on the etymology of substance in the history of philosophy. And so what he's doing is he's using a source that's allowing him to presuppose his own position and it becomes viciously circular. All right, let's go on to see how that plays out as he looks at each definition for the word substance in Webster's dictionary and then apply that to immaterial. And let's see what happens. God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no physical substance. I believe this is a fair, bare-bones description of an immaterial God. So let's replace the word substance with its subsequent definitions. God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no essential nature. Okay, so he says God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no essential nature. No, God's nature has no physicality. Remember, this is what I'm saying. You're presuming your position here. God's nature has no physicality. It's not that um, to, for, for God's substance to be immaterial, that that means that God can't exist, right? It means that he doesn't have a physical substance. He is immaterial. Um, we're going to see this happen again. It's going to get worse. Let's stick with it. God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no ultimate reality that underlies all outward manifestations and change. So he's going by the Webster's definition uh, dictionary thing. And I was going to try to, I had it up just a while ago. I don't have it up now. Um, but the point is he's taking what it says substance is. And then he's saying, so we're going to negate that and, and go with that. And that's obviously problematic. And so the answer to this is, no, he says God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no ultimate reality that underlies all outward manifestations and change. No, immaterial has no ultimate physical substance that underlies all outward manifestation and change. Let's hear what he says next. This is the best one, by the way. God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no practical importance. No, 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 Kwaku, no, no. I have to point out, I'm sorry because I know you're a nice guy and I want to be a nice guy. I think that we should all be nice humans. I do think that. But this is merely a logical blunder, a serious logical blunder. And if I were your professor, I would have taken off serious points for it. He's still quoting Webster, which I also would have taken off points for. But Webster is giving you various definitions with an understanding that the same word can be used in different contexts, right? Um, Kwaku has blatantly equivocated between substance in the sense of the content of a presentation, i.e. this portion of Kwaku's presentation has no substance and substance in the sense of ontology, right? These are two separate. He's equivocating. This is bad. This is bad, bad. I like you, Kwaku, but this is bad. Um, so, and I, and you know, maybe he didn't recognize this. Maybe he did recognize it, but kind of wanted to take a shot over the bow. But if so, I couldn't tell that's what he was doing. Um, this, this is not, this is just an equivocation. Uh, let's hear the last one. God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no physical material from which something is made or which has discrete existence. Again, these definitions.
Uh, and he says, again, these come from Webster's Dictionary. Uh, and and I, I think he takes that as a source of credibility for it, but not in the sense that he's using these things in the nuanced field of philosophy and, and ontology. So, um, so yeah, God's nature is immaterial. Immaterial has no physical material from which something is made. Okay, yes, no physical material, right? That's That's fine. We're talking about immaterial substance. So what he's done is he's taken you know, the definition from a practical modern English dictionary, not a nuanced philosophical source. I mean, we have like the Stanford Encyclopedia, the Cambridge Encyclopedia. We have sources for these sorts of things, numerous papers, uh, even stuff from Christian philosophers and Christian apologists that would give you what a substance is the way that we use it. But he's gone to a, an improper source for this, I, I think. And then he has has applied the way they're using it with respect to largely physical things or equivocating where they're not even talking. Ontology isn't even the subject. We're talking about the substance of a presentation or something. And, and then he's applying that to God and saying, see, this doesn't match. And so uh, that sort of a God can't be real. That 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 just makes no sense. That's not how you approach these things. All right. So I want to look at uh, one more thing and then I want to make some other comments that I think are important. But uh, when he came back from his rebuttal, he began talking a little bit about things that have to do with problems that he perceives if God is, if God is not in the, the creation. Uh, by the way, that's something I don't, I want to say right here before I forget it. The whole premise here is we, we don't think God has a physical body. Part of the reason for that is because he made everything. He's not a part of what is made. He, you can't, if you, if you're, if you're part of the creation, you can't point to something within creation to explain the existence of creation. Now, of course, um, Mormons believe that the universe, uh, is past infinite. We're going to get to that in just a few moments and that God, and he says later, he, he's going to say right here in the clip, I'm going to play that. Yeah, God made everything or whatever, but he's not talking about material creation. He's talking about formal creation. This is the technical terminology he doesn't use, but it's the formal creation. Like I can, I can pick up a stick that's just lying there and, and I've made this into a walking stick. Or we could get a bit more technical and say, maybe I made a chair, but I took pre-existing matter and made that chair. But uh, Christian theology and classical Orthodox theology understands uh, that God created from nothing, the physical universe. And if you're a part of the creation, you can't point to something inside the creation to explain the creation because that thing that's a part of the creation is part of the thing you're trying to explain. Often I've used Toy Story for this. Um, if I asked you who or what caused the Toy Story universe to come into existence and you said, well, I think Woody the cowboy caused it. That wouldn't make any sense because he's part of the thing we're trying to explain. You know that voice actors, um, digital animators, musicians, script writers, people like that are the ones who cause the digital universe of Toy Story to come into existence. Likewise, just like you can't point to someone or something in the physical universe as the explanation for the physical universe, um, you can't point to God can't be physical and, and, and a part of the physical universe. Um, if he's the cause of that creation. Now, obviously we have Jesus. And by the way, I meant to mention Jesus and the spirit when we were talking about relationship and worship. Uh, so let's take both of those real quickly before we go on to the next clip. So uh, Jesus is in the physical universe and he is God, but God condescended. God um, is, Jesus is God wrapped in human flesh. He is God incarnate. Uh, that's what's beautiful about Jesus. But God the Father is not in the physical universe. And this is an important thing um, because when we talk about relationship and worship, so there are things that perhaps we couldn't have understood about God 
un unless we could have what we call special revelation. And the most obvious and most robust expression of special revelation would have been um, as the Bible describes, Jesus coming into the world and speaking the truth about the one true God. And so because we have this historical figure who we believe is risen and now lives, this God came into human existence and communicated to us uh, directly in a way that we can have relationship with him. Moreover, we have the spirit to bridge the gap uh, to the Father. So what we have here is we pray in the name of Jesus. We have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, and we and we have we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus that way, and we have the the agent of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. All of this works together and makes complete sense. It may sound strange to people that don't believe it, but it works really well. There's no contradictions. There's no difficulty. But the idea that the Creator of the universe was originally part of the physical universe would be problematic. Of course, that's not what the Mormons hold to, and we're going to look at what they hold to and why it's very very problematic to the point that I think we can say that the Mormon concept of the Father is impossible um, in, in just a few moments. But first, let's hear this next clip about omnipresence. So I agree wholeheartedly that God created everything, that God created all. But I challenge this notion that God can truly be God if he's outside of time and space. For example, how can God be everywhere and all-powerful and see what's happening here in time and space if he exists outside of time and space. Unless he partially exists in time and space and partially exists outside of time and space. But that is not what the creeds have written down and that's not what Jeremy espoused. If he sees all, he must exist in time and space. We're all existing in time and space. I think that's the unanimous agreement in the room. And I think we all agree that God right now is looking down and he can see what's going on. That can only mean that God exists in time and space. All right. Now, I think it's really helpful sometimes when someone is making a case, making an argument, presenting an idea. If we can write it down and take a look at it with clarity, that can be really helpful. And interestingly, Kwaku, whether intentionally or unintentionally, just almost presented this as a syllogism with premises and a conclusion. So I, I wrote it down here the way I, I think he would agree with it. Premise one, and the he I'm talking about here is God. Premise one, if he sees all, he must exist in time and space. Premise two, he sees all. Conclusion, he exists in time and space. All right, okay, fair enough. Looks all right, sounds all right. Can we take issue with one of these two premises, premise one or present premise two? Um, well, premise two is he sees all. Okay, I can agree with that. I think every Orthodox Christian can agree with that. So he sees all seems solid. So premise two is fine. But what was premise one? Premise one is if he sees all, he must exist in time and space. If he sees all, he must exist in time and space. Um, is that obviously true? I don't see that it is. In, in fact, this is a premise that he would have to supply additional arguments for to support premise one. Whenever we present these arguments, uh, it's perfectly fine to state something that is controversial as a premise in an argument. Now, you want your premise, a good argument will have premises that are plausible, which means more likely to be true than false. 
But someone might challenge one of the premises of your argument, and then it's perfectly acceptable to present further argumentation to support that premise. Now, if I'd been debating Kwaku, I would have written this out as he was saying it, just like I have here as a syllogism, and I would have challenged him on premise one. And I would say, what is your further argumentation to make the assertion, if he sees all, he must exist in time and space? Because that doesn't seem obviously true to me. I don't know why that would be the case. In fact, I'll provide a simple analogy that I, that, that I think uh, is a counter uh, analogy to this. And it's imperfect. All analogies are imperfect because obviously I can't get out of I can't get outside of time and space to make an analogy about this. But but I could say imperfectly, even in our limited existence in time and space, we can already simulate this in a sense. So you could say something like, um, uh, if Kwaku sees what's going on in Buckingham Palace, Kwaku must exist in Buckingham Palace. Kwaku uh, sees what's going on in Buckingham Palace. Therefore, Kwaku exists in Buckingham Palace. Now, that sounds okay. It seems to make some intuitive sense. But is it technically true? Well, no, it's not technically true. Because we know that we could have a live camera feed in Buckingham Palace, right? And it's an imperfect analogy. We're not outside of time and space, but just bear with me here. So, in fact, we've probably done this. When the royal wedding took place, perhaps they showed us footage from within Buckingham Palace. And at other times, perhaps we've seen inside of Buckingham Palace through a live video feed. And for that, we could, we'd, have to re, we'd have to look at premise one again. If Kwaku sees what's happening inside Buckingham Palace, Kwaku exists in Buckingham Palace is that true? Not necessarily true, because Kwaku could be watching a live feed from the other side of the world at what's going on in Buckingham Palace. And so uh, even though this is an imperfect analogy, even in our limited position as limited creatures, we can see and know what's going on in another place without existing in that other place. So it doesn't seem at all to me obviously true that an all-powerful God existing um, sans the physical universe could not see what's going on everywhere and at all times in the physical universe. So we would need to see more support for what's going on there in premise one in order to affirm something like this problematic syllogism. But, um, you know, Kwaku later in this discussion uh, quotes from some early church fathers, and he's talking about them. And I want to point out that there are a couple of ways that Christians have thought about omnipresence in the past. Now, there, uh, there is omniscience. Omniscience is really the thing that God knows what's going on everywhere and always. But um, omnipresence plays into this, too, because he's talking about God's location needing to be in the physical universe. And there have been Christians and probably some Christians in the pews that have thought that if God's going to be omnipresent, if he's going to. If, in order, what that must mean is that God is like diffused throughout the physical universe, like a gas that fills the whole universe, so that He can be geographically everywhere in the whole universe. Um, but uh, that's not really how you have to understand omnipresence. You could understand omnipresence to mean that God is aware and active at all locations in the physical universe and at all times. And that wouldn't have that problem of trying to place God physically in the physical universe. And in fact, I think that's in keeping with a good understanding of Scripture, but also a good understanding of, of early church voices. So, for instance, just to point to a way that I think that David in the Psalms is pointing in that direction, in Psalm 139, David says, If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. Now, obviously, those are places 
within the physical universe. But um, the, the early church voices, Theophilus, for example, says, but this is the attribute of God, the highest and almighty and the living God, not only to be everywhere present, but also to see all things and to hear all and by no means to be confined in a place. For if he were, then the place containing him would be greater than he. For that which contains is greater than that which is contained. For God is not contained, but is himself the place of all. Clement of Alexandria. For God is not in darkness or in place, but above both space and time and qualities of objects. Wherefore, neither is he at any time in a part, uh, either as containing or as contained, either by limitation or by section. For what house will you build to me, saith the Lord? Nay, he has not even built one for himself, since he cannot be contained. And though heaven be called his throne, not even thus is he contained, but uh, he rests delighted in the creation. Um, and then we have origin as well. And, and I'm going I'm to read from further on down, down the passage here. Um, his own power descended with Jesus into the life of men. And although the word which was in the beginning with God, which is also God himself, should come to us, he does not give his place or vacate his own seat so that one place should be empty of him and another which did not formally contain him be filled. But the power and divinity of God comes through him whom God chooses and resides in him who it, it finds a place, not changing its situation nor leaving its own place empty and filling another for in speaking of his quitting. So I think that keeping with early church voices and of course um, scripture itself, I think we can see you could conceive of God filling all of the physical universe like a gas, but that doesn't seem right at all. What also seems consistent with the history of the church is to say God is aware and active everywhere in the physical universe and at all times. So I think that these problems just go away when you when you take these sorts of things into account. Now, I, I want to say something else here. Um, some Mormons now Quake, you didn't bring this unless I missed it in this discussion. Uh, but uh, Kwaku, uh, the, some Mormons hold to a uh, more traditional ones hold to this view that 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 this okay so the father that we have right now was once a man and that he had a father and that that he had a father and that he had a father and that we have an infinite regression of fathers that stretches back infinitely into the past. To clarify this and uh, to add a little response. I'm going to read to you just a short passage. This is very short. Just bear with me from Stephen E. Parrish in his essay, A Tale of Two Theisms, that you can find in the book, The New Mormon Challenge, which is a fantastic work that I think you should have. He says, this problem is exacerbated from more traditional Mormon theology. On that reading of Mormonism, God is not the original God. Joseph Smith taught that God, the father of Jesus Christ, had a father. And that we may, quote, suppose that he had a father also. Where was there ever a son without a father? And where was there ever a father without first being a son? End quote. In agreement with this view, Orson Pratt wrote that, quote, the person of our father in heaven was begotten on a previous heavenly world by his father. And again, he was begotten by a still more ancient father and so on from generation to generation, from one heavenly world to another still more ancient until our minds are wearied and lost in the multiplicity of generations and successive worlds, end quote. So Parrish picks up, since Mormons believe that the universe never had a beginning in time, this view implies that there are an infinite number of gods, each of whom had another god as his father. The particular god who is the god of our earth is just one link in an infinite chain of gods. 
Now, if you've been following philosophical discussions, worldview discussions, you might be aware that there's a major problem with the idea of an infinite regression of causal events, and this would apply to an infinite series of fathers. And even if a Mormon out there does not hold to this idea of an infinite chain of fathers, if they do hold to uh, an infinite past for the physical universe, or an infinite past for some multiverse, it doesn't work there either, which means that this conception of reality and certainly the, the infinite chain of fathers cannot be the case. And this is a damning blow, I think, to Mormon theology proper. And so let's uh, let's think about this for just a few minutes. Why is it impossible? Well, when we talk about these things, we talk about them in terms of actual infinites and potential infinites. Now, potential infinites are infinites that exist conceptually. We can imagine an infinite series of things, and mathematicians can work with those kinds of infinites. When we talk about God being infinite, we're talking about his qu the quality of infinite. We're not talking about a quantity of, of successive moments. So don't get those things confused. This is why terminology is really important, and it's why you have to have the right tools to, to talk about these things uh, properly, I think. But um, when so you have potential infinites that, yeah, we can do mathematical equations. We can we can we can imagine dividing a line an infinite number of times. So that's a potential infinite. But then on the other hand, you have actual infinites. An actual infinite would be something like uh, an infinite number of sand, of grains of sand on the beaches of the world. There isn't actually an infinite number. Uh, we might say it's infinite, but we're just being poetic or, or hyperbolic. There is a number. It may be ridiculously high, but there is a number. Um, but there are not an actual infinite number of grains of sand on the beaches of the world. There aren't an actual infinite number of atoms in the physical universe or quarks in the physical universe. And if there is a multiverse that also can't be infinite, but let's say there are trillions and trillions of multiverses, then all the quarks in all the universes is still not going to be infinite. It's going to be obscenely high number, but it's not going to be actually infinite. So, but, but on Mormonism, you do have an actual infinite number of passive fathers, at least among some traditional Mormons. So this would mean that, um, that, that it's not just a really high number of fathers, a really big number. It's that there's an actual infinite number of fathers stretching back. There is no first one. It just goes back and back and back forever. Like the, uh, like the, the, the author said, it was until you just, your head gets weary thinking about it. Right. Okay, that isn't possible uh, for the following reason. First, if there wasn't a first father who started out as a first son and then became a father, right, um, already problematic, or, uh, or even if you just had a father that started out as uh, a powerful God on the Mormon understanding of God, um, if you don't have that first one in the series, then you can't even begin the series to get to where we are today with the current father that we have. Secondly, even if you did have a first one, whatever that would mean, you could never get to the current one if there's an actual infinite because you could never cross an actual infinite. Because no matter how far you go crossing infinite, you would still be just getting started in your process because if you could cross half of infinite, which you can't, you'd still have infinite to go. And the analogy that many of my listeners have heard me give many times for this is the infinite library. Let's imagine you had an infinite number of books and every other book was red and every other book was black. And let's say you took it and it's an infinite number of books, an actually infinite number. If you took away all the black books, you have black, red, black, red, black. You took away all the black books to so that all you have left is red books. And yet how many books would you now have? Well, the answer would be you'd have still an infinite number of books. You just have an infinite number of red books. Yeah, but I took away half. 
That's because you run into these kinds of absurdities when you talk about infinites, an actual infinite in space and time in the way that we're talking about it right now. And so you can't have an actual infinite number of fathers because if you crossed half of them, just like with the books, you'd still have an infinite number to go. And you can never even really get started to arrive at the point that we're at right now with the current father that we apparently or supposedly currently have. So the idea of an actual infinite chain of fathers is impossible. Now, there is a website that is, um, that is called fairmormon.org where they attempt to address, this is a, this is a Mormon apologist website. They attempt to address this problem. Um, and they start off by telling you that quote, not all Latter-day Saints accept the idea, which suggests a regression of divine beings. Mormon doctrine on this point is not clear and mostly speculative. It does not play much of a role one way or the other in LDS worship or thought. But of course we've seen how one would arrive at this conclusion. If Joseph Smith taught that how can, how can someone be a father without having first been a son? And then how could he have been a son without being a father? If you just extrapolate that out and you have an infinite past, then you get an infinite chain of fathers. So, uh, one, so they, they, they offer, um, fairmormon.org offers one solution to this, which is maybe you don't think there's an infinite chain of fathers. Maybe some Mormons can think that God, the father did not have a divine father. Okay, but for those Mormons that I think are more in line with the thinking of uh, Joseph Smith, and I think Brigham Young and perhaps some others, uh, where God the Father had a divine father, and you have this infinite chain, here's what they say in response. Quote, those who attack the saints on these grounds often make the mistake of confusing various ideas about infinity. They may take principles that apply to finite things and improperly extrapolate them to infinite things. Transfinite mathematics and some aspects of the calculus deal with infinities and show that such concepts are not irrational, nor do they share all our intuitive ideas of what infinities must involve. So you need to understand that this person who wrote this, whoever wrote this, started off by saying those who attack the saints on these grounds often make the mistake of confusing various ideas about infinities. When in that very paragraph, they confused ideas about infinities between potential versus actual infinites. But they go on to say, it should be noted too that the problem of an infinite past is also an issue for any believer in God. Anyone who believes that God has existed forever and created the universe ex nihilo out of nothing must also confront similar difficulties about infinite past, infinite regression, and the like. An improper or unsophisticated approach to infinities could also make the idea of a God that existed forever seem illogical. Critics are often quick to see their own stance as reasonable while believing that the Latter-day Saint view is incoherent. It's because it is incoherent. Here's the thing. Those who affirm the classical theism that I'm talking about, uh, that mainstream Christianity affirms, don't have this obvious and damning problem. And the reason is because while we can say God has existed forever, we can say he exists far back in time as there is time and in far forward in time as there will be time. But we also hold that he exists timelessly. Time is a part of the physical universe and sans the physical universe, God exists which means that God exists timelessly. And what sort of things need beginnings and endings? Well, things that are in time. Those are temporal terminology. 
So if you're talking about an infinite series of events or an infinite series of time, well, those don't apply to the mainstream Christian understanding of God or classical theistic God because God exists timelessly and thus needs no beginning, but also does not exist over an infinite amount of time. The problem just dissolves. And the author of this article either doesn't see that or doesn't feel like he needs to come out and say that. So what we see here, I think, in Kwaku's, um, in Kwaku's presentation is we see a presumption of naturalism, at least in, insofar as um, the, there's nothing immaterial in the sense that evangelicals mean it, um, a presumption of that, a presumption that if something isn't physical, it isn't real. We see the same thing from atheist spokespersons all the time. I've heard Matt Dillahunty say, for example, um, to say that God is, exists immaterial is to say that he exists nowhere and at no time which is to say he doesn't exist, or you're saying that he doesn't exist in reality. This, of course, is to presuppose that physical reality is the only sort of reality. But that, of course, as Kwaku, and Kwaku does this at the beginning of this, he quotes from, from his source and uh, basically says an immaterial substance cannot exist and has no relation to time and space. This is to say if something isn't physical, it isn't real, or it's merely an idea. Um, I could go further with the Mormon conception of God, and actually we have, uh, we haven't even talked about Jesus that much in this episode. We have an episode of that that I'll link in the show notes, so look below for that where we go through a whole lot more, and we have a PowerPoint, we talk about all these things. But I just thought that I would um, mention this real quickly and say that I think that this is a great comparison of the Christian God versus the Mormon God and the major problems we see with the Mormon God. Real quickly, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to this channel and also I'd like you to consider helping us respond to atheists and those of other religions on this channel. And you can do that by praying for us, but you can also do that by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio, where you can financially support us and you get something out of it. You get multiple eBooks, you get five full seminary level courses with PowerPoints, you get um, episodes that we've never released anywhere else, and you get a few other things. Um, I hope that you'll go check that out and uh, listen. Um, I've had fun today with this, and uh, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.